Well, good morning, Harvest. Uh, I bring you guys greetings uh, from Vine and Branch Community Church down in Helmsburg, Indiana. Uh, I can appreciate what it takes to kind of get some things together. We, too, are a new church, a couple years old, and uh, we actually share a building with another church, and so we actually have to meet on 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoons, which, by the way, is a great time to have church. I don't know if you guys experience this coming in the morning. And I know, I know, you know, sin comes from the heart, but I'm telling you, when we move church till four, the, you know, our den of iniquity, getting to church really has kind of chilled out. So we've become such great fans of it, we almost called our church the church at four. You know, we were so excited about that. Uh, but I bring you greetings uh, from our friends there, uh, believers in Christ. A little bit about how I got here today to be with you. Um, Doug Helmer and I have been uh, friends uh, for, well, since 1997. And a little bit about how I met Doug. Um, Mary and I, my wife and I just crested 20 years of marriage this past June. And so pretty excited about that. We have four children. Isaiah is eight or ten. Luke is eight. Cade is uh, three. A very fast and furious three, and Marcelina is 16 months, and then we just adopted a three-year-old lab just before Christmas because our family wasn't crazy enough already. Um, so Mary and I just married 20 years, but 15, 16 years ago, we had just come back from some missionary work in the Dominican Republic. We were working with troubled American teenagers, and we were there for three years, and um, our marriage was struggling a little bit, and so we decided we needed to go to counseling. And so if you're like me, I entered into this thinking this is going to be the same paradigm I always think of it, and it's going to be um, the counselor and then Mary and I. Well, that, that wasn't the way it was. There was the counselor, then there was this guy with a pencil and a notepad in the corner, and Mary and I. And so the counselor jumps right in, and he starts doing his thing. I'm like, oh, oh, wait a minute. So if you get to know me a little bit, you find out I'm, uh, I'm disguised as a guest speaker for you today, but in, in real life, I'm a red-hot mess. And so when he started into his thing, I, hey, dude, time out, time out. I'm here for counseling. I get you and your role. What's he doing in the corner, and why has he got a pen and paper? You getting ready to hear my junk. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me introduce you. Well, that guy in the corner with a pen and paper was Doug Helmer. So he was taking notes furiously, and um, he told me after we became friends, he said, the minute I started into that, because I could kind of be a little intense sometimes, he thought, Randy, he thought I was coming over the couch to get him. So, so that's how I met Doug. Uh, long story short, six months later, Doug moved to Pennsylvania, uh, not planned. My wife and I moved into the same town in Pennsylvania, so we spent three, four years there together. He moved back to Indiana. We followed him back to Indiana. Again, it was unplanned, but we've been able to maintain our friendship uh, since 97, and I really appreciate Doug's friendship. Um, he serves on our board of directors at 12 Stones and just very thankful for his role in my life. And so if I could just give you an infomercial on behalf of your pastor and his labor to bring you the word, if I could encourage you as a brother and sister, as a brother in Christ, that you would listen hard and work at applying the word that he brings to you regularly. I would encourage and admonish you as the body of Christ at harvest, that as your pastor, pastors labor over the word, that you would labor to listen and to apply. 
I've heard it said that the bridge between, medi- between knowing and doing is meditation. Getting things from your head to your heart, the way we apply the word is by meditating on it and thinking about it over and over. And I would strongly encourage you to respond to the hard work of your pastor by hard listening. I encourage you with that this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. I'm going to read that. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I mean, think about these words in here, guys. This is powerful stuff. We're no longer foreigners and aliens. We're fellow citizens, members of God's household. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In him we're joined together and we rise to become a holy temple in the Lord. And together we're being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And think about that. Us together, believers in Christ, become a dwelling place for the living God. What a humble privilege. The passage starts off consequently, which means in relationship to this. And so we've got to back up and look at some things before we jump into this passage. So I'm going to back up in the context a little bit because I think it lends a ton to the meaning of this passage. And so what I'm going to do is kind of fly over at about 30,000 feet and kind of take a big perspective overview of the passage before we actually walk into the passage. By the way, some of these these little squares um, creak real bad, and I keep moving because I'm pretty sure if I don't do a good enough job, one of them's going to open up and I'm going to disappear. (laughs) So some context about this letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes. In most of Paul's letters, he moves from doctrine to pap practical application and this book is no different in that regard so in again in most of paul's books ephesians philippians galatians colossians first and second thessalonians all these epistles paul gives good sound doctrine here's who god is here's who christ is and then he typically moves to here's who you are in relationship to him here's who he says you are now do this here's what you're supposed to do Living out of the reality of who God is defines who I am, determines how I act. I think oftentimes as a church, we make the mistake of jumping right into, here's how I should act. For example, who knows what Philippians 4, 6 says? Be anxious about any, be anxious about nothing. Who knows what Philippians 4, 5 says? See, be anxious about nothing starts at the semicolon. And so sometimes we try to comfort each other with these words. Don't be anxious. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been anxious. But then when somebody tells you not to be anxious, it's like, do you like your teeth? Right? (laughs) 
if it's interesting that we understand the doing part, be anxious about nothing. But Ephesians 4, 5, the part that precedes that, the semicolon before says this, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious. See, we, we, we forget that this is the reality of living out of God's character. See, why am I not to be anxious? Because God is close to you. Don't be anxious. Your heavenly Father who knows all things, who loves you deeply, he has everything together. He's close. Don't be anxious. So this is the tone of most of Paul's letters, and it's true here in Ephesians as well. But here's a difference in this book. This book is cast in the form of a Jewish blessing. It's fatherly in tone, and it's ruled by parallelism, and it's strongly poetic. So this book has a different tone than other epistles. He speaks it, he writes it differently. So context teaches. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Context teaches? It's, it's kind of like the phrase, um, better caught than taught, when it refer, referring to parenting, right? It's how you say it and how you live is more important even than what you say. Or it's as important. And so in this letter, context teaches what Paul is exemplifying in not only what he says, but how he says it is that this, you can't talk or meditate on the content found in Ephesians without a deeper connection to the reality of relationships. See, Paul's writing these truths, but he writes them like a father giving a Jewish blessing to his son. So in other words, you can't talk about being connected about the reality of in Christ and love. You can't talk about these things without being tender in relationship. And so Paul teaches with both content and context as he writes this letter. Preceding this passage that we're getting ready to jump into is solid theology of the reality of Christ and the preeminence of Christ. This letter is both filled with the concepts of and tone of gratitude and relationship. And again, in both teaching and tone, this epistle is set apart. Not just what Paul says, but how he says it. Content and context. But here's what also is interesting. That sets this letter apart to the Ephesians, but what sets the Ephesians apart is their love for one another. And Paul talks about that with them. He praises that with the Ephesians. And so Paul opens the book with two themes. In Christ and love. Paul closes the book, the letter to the Ephesians, with two themes. In Christ and love. See, a lot of times people hear about the book of Ephesians and we think of it as a book on unity, on church unity. That's true. But unity is a byproduct of being in Christ and love. You get unity because people are in Christ loving one another and unity is a byproduct. Unity is not the goal. It is a byproduct of the goal or the byproduct of the reality of being in Christ, and then we love. In the first chapter of the 
the, the letter, the term in Christ is used 11 times. A lot of us have heard, you guys are in good Bible teaching church, if a, if a writer in the Bible repeats something, it's because he wants you to take notice of it. Well, in the first chapter, he uses the term in Christ 11 times. In Christ, he would say, those who have been far off have been made close. He says this in chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ, he brings unlikely siblings together into one family. Particularly in the book of Ephesus, you have Jews and Gentiles, and in Christ, they become these unlikely siblings. The application for us is we have this body of believers that in Christ, unlikely siblings, all of us, red-hot messes, bring our entire beings and unlikely siblings become one. Now, we sang a song just before we got started here with, it, the part of the chorus was, no, no greater love the world has ever known. Now, we're going to take a minute just to look towards application for a second. What does that mean? How does the world know this great love? Does the world discover it in a book? Does it just get taught? Or does that great love get shown to the world because it's manifested by God's children loving their siblings? And the reality of being in Christ sets us up, therefore, for the next theme of the book, which is the reality of love. Paul uses the word love nine times in this one book in comparison to 23 times in the rest of his letters combined. So more than a third of his use of the term love comes from the book of Ephesians. It's an overflow of being in Christ. He talks about their love for one another. Paul commends the Ephesians, says this, For this reason, ever since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Chapter 1, verse 15. Then Paul prays that the love that the Ephesians have for one another will remain. He says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. It's chapter 3, four, verse 14 through 19. And then in his instructions to the pastor at the church of Ephesus, Paul says this to Timothy. Timothy, as I urged you when you went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Friends, the goal of Christianity is not unity. It's not community. 
Unity and community is a byproduct of being in Christ and love. The goal of Christianity is Christ Jesus, true. The central point of all of Christianity is Christ Jesus, true. It's not community. It isn't. Community is a result of us all focusing on the thing that is worthy of all of our focus, Christ Jesus. The goal of Christianity is not community. It is a byproduct of our affection for Christ. But I would also tell you that the goal of Christianity is also not sound doctrine. It isn't. Sound doctrine, Paul tells Timothy, is, can take us to love. It teaches us how to love. It shows us what's worthy of our love and our affection. But it's not the end. It's a means to the end. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not against sound doctrine. We started our church two years ago in our area in Brown County because it was very hard to find sound doctrine and good teaching. But it is a means to an end. And Paul tells Timothy to make the goal of his sound doctrine, to make the goal of his good teaching, to make the goal of protecting the teaching in their church to make the goal of that love. You catching the importance of these two themes as we head into our passage. So let's fast forward now, 35 years later, and get a little bit more context before we talk about our passage. 35 years later, post Paul penning this letter to the Ephesians. Who knows what happens to the Ephesians church? Does anybody know? The Ephesians had lost their love for one another. See, although they had their doctrinal ducks in a row, and they protected ecclesiological purity, and they were active in ministry, they had lost sight of of the goal. One commentary says this, though they had retained purity of doctrine and life and had maintained a high level of service, they were lacking deep devotion to Christ and to one another. Isn't it interesting, my friends, that we can, as believers, retain purity of doctrine and life and maintain a high level of service and at the same time, lack devotion to Christ and to one another. Another commentary says this, How many churches stand at this same crossroads? Do we sense the importance to Christ of not only honoring his name by our true confession, but also reflecting his life by our loving relationships to others? So I want to, again, just take a pause and look, jump forward a little bit to application. I'm going to be asking you a question in a little bit. But I think this ought to cause us to, to, to ask ourselves a couple good questions. We operate in a church where we think we got some conservative evangelical culture. We really are about good, solid theology. And I think it's right for us to pause and ask ourselves the question, is our good and solid theology leading us to love? Or are we very satisfied with the fact 
that we know good things, we're on the right things, that our pastors teach the right things, that our church is sound in its doctrine, are we satisfied with that? Do we even take pride in that? Or is it leading us to love? Because Jesus, his own words, says this to the Ephesians in in Revelations chapter 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Now, it's interesting in this passage, I don't think Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. You don't tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and they're not. You've found them false. You've persevered. I don't think he's saying, and those are bad things. What he's saying is those are good things, but you've lost sight of the goal, repent. See, those are only good things as a means to an end, but you've lost something. And it's your love, your first love. The phrase lost their first love is talking about their love for one another, not just referring to Jesus himself as their first love. One commentary says this, they had forsaken or let go their first love. This was a serious defect. If uncorrected, it would result in their loss of light-bearing evangelism. And the majority of commentators take the first love to refer to the original Christian love the Ephesians had for one another. See, we often hear first love in reference to a believer's heart and love towards Christ. And while some commentators agree with that, most commentators believe that Christ is referring to their first love as one another. And as I further studied this passage, I was a little confused by that. But in my study, I began to realize they're truly, they're inseparable. If you love Christ, you love believers. It's one of the evidences of salvation in 1 John. True? See, you can't love Christ and not love your brothers and sisters. And if you, if you can't love your brother who you see, how can you say you love your God who you can't see? They're inseparable. First John 4, 7, 8 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. See, Jesus' call to the Ephesians, remember the height from which you have fallen. This is a comment on their love for one another. They had flip-flopped their priorities. Love is the high place. Friends, I just ask you to pause for a minute and think, is this not a comment, a commentary on the conservative evangelical church of America today, generally speaking? We're so about sound doctrine, 
but we've lost sight of our love for one another. We're so worried about reacting to the over-focus on community and unity and the maintaining sound doctrine and purity that perhaps we've forgotten that we've fallen from the high place. And Jesus' words to the book of, to the, to, the, to the church of Ephesus is, repent and remember. See, good deeds, sound doctrine, apostle purity, good things, but they're a means to an end. They are not the end in of themselves. Make the goal of your instruction, Timothy, love. So this context then brings us into our focus passage. Ephesians chapter 19, chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let me read kind of, let me emphasize the highlights of Paul's main points here. And I think as I do, you'll be able to see the crescendo and where Paul is leading. He says, consequently, we're no longer foreigners and aliens, that in Christ we've been brought near. We were once outside, now we're inside. Our identity is this in Christ. We're no longer foreigners and aliens. So in Christ, we've been brought near. We're members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone, Christ as the focus, and in him the whole body is joined together, rising to become a temple in the Lord, and in him we're being built together. Do you sense this crescendo? To become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That together, all of us, in Christ, nothing we did, he's done it on our behalf. We haven't earned it, but being in Christ, we've been called to be together, and we become together, in love, a dwelling place for the God of heaven. Are you hearing this, friends? When God came in the Old Testament, my boys in homeschool just made this whole little tabernacle thing and they got the Holy of Holies. When you walked into that place, apart from purity, you dropped dead. They would put bells on the garments of the priests in case they heard them stop tingling and they figured he went in there with sin and they had a rope on his ankle so they could pull the old boy out. Because of God's presence and here in the book of Ephesians we find manifesting in our love to one another is the presence the dwelling of God himself friends come on you get excited about that see when think about it this way when you're walking up the steps to your friend's house with a casserole. This is the presence of God making himself known among us. It's not just bringing a casserole. 
when I, as a, a, a dad, see a young mom who's got a boy who's 13, 14, and she's starting to lose control of him, and I say, can I help? This isn't just an act of kindness. This is the presence of God being made manifest among us. When you see a marriage in your small group struggling, and you say, man, I'm really uncomfortable. I don't even know what to do. But rather than pray with them, I'm going to press in and help them. This is the presence of God being made manifest among us. When you organize your small groups, not to just play church, but to be the church. When you're reaching out to the new couple to have them over for a meal and finding out about their faith and their family, this isn't just something the church does, friends. This is God's presence being made manifest among us. The power of being in Christ takes us beyond trivial platitudes and passive participation in church programs to a much grander mission, friends, and it's called the kingdom of God right here on earth. And when unbelief, no greater love has the world seen than this. This is evangelism. So here's the main points of Paul's teaching in this passage. Believers in Christ manifesting love to one another become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the kingdom. So John says this in chapter 13, verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right? We could all sing the song. And they will know we are Christians by our love. I know I sound like a drunk Johnny Cash, but just get beyond that, okay? <laughs> and then again, John says this, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, isn't this interesting? John says that none of us have ever seen God, but if we love one another, isn't that interesting? If you get some time, look at the whole context of the passage. We haven't seen God. But in our love for one another, we see God. Paul says later to the Ephesians in chapter 4, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And guys, the world cannot ignore this kind of love, and it's called evangelism. See, this is the foundation for evangelism. My personal opinion, thus thinketh Rob, not thus believeth the Lord, but my personal opinion on this is the reason that many of our evangelical efforts, our evangelistic efforts fail is because they're disconnected from this reality of the love of the body of Christ. See, what the world thinks about the church global is that there's over 900 different denominations in the church. You guys can't even get your stuff together. They don't have any concept that we're ministering to them out of love. They think we're doing it out of obligation because they're not seeing it. The foundation, the basis for evangelism is love. And when you talk about Christ in that context, people want more of it. 
It's just the way it is. That's thus saith the Lord, not thus thinketh Rob. Jesus himself prays for us and says this, my prayer is not for them alone, speaking of us as believers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world, so that, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. God's love for Christ, God's love for the world. God's love for Christ, even as you have loved me. This is his prayer for us. And so as we think about that, that ought to cause us to seriously consider some applications. Two questions. Are you in Christ? And are you in love? They go together. Are you in Christ? Have you been brought from the dominion of darkness to light? Where there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ? Are you in Christ? John 14, 18 says, you're, you're no longer orphans, but sons, daughters, that our heavenly father says in Christ, you are my sibling. I'm sorry, you're my child. These are your siblings. Peter says this in Second Peter, that you become participants in the divine nature. The writer of Hebrews says that we share, we are become partakers in his holiness. Are you kidding me? My last name is Basosa. Pretty proud of that. Like my last name. It's, uh, my grandfather was a, an Italian immigrant to Puerto Rico. Married my little Puerto Rican grandmother. Kind of a cool heritage. So I got that name on my back. But see, that carries also a lot of luggage with it and family sin and strife and difficulty. See, when I come to Christ and I now go to the mirror and I turn around and look, the new name put across my back, my new last name is divine nature. Are you serious? I did nothing to earn that. He chose me. You're in my family. Your new name is my last name, divine nature. How do you like that? Are we in Christ? And do you live out of the reality of your position with Christ? Is that your fundamental foundation for your service to others? That you have a new last name and you're living out that reality? Do you live out the reality of your position in Christ's body? Are you in love? What are the gifts that you bring as an effort to love those here at Harvest? If 
Paul tells the Ephesians later in the book of Ephesians again that the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows as it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What's your part of the work? Are you bringing that as a love gift to those here at the body? How can you intentionally grow in your love for the brethren, for your brothers and sisters in Christ here in your family group? How can you grow intentionally and be more loving out of the reality of who you are in Christ? I'd encourage you to give serious considerations to the application of this passage. I taught this passage um, before, and so I asked one of my friends, she actually works for me, um, hey, what were some of the things that you, it caused you to think about what, what were some of the applications you considered as you listened or read my notes through this passage? What were some of your applications? And so again, the bridge between knowing and doing is meditation. Guys, you ought to be thinking and meditating upon these questions in order to see growth in your life. And so this isn't everybody's maybe, but this was hers, and I found them challenging, and I thought I'd encourage you with them. She made, I told her I was going to do this, and she said, hey, make sure you tell them. Make sure you tell them I'm a performer. Make, make sure you tell them that I like to do good things sometimes to be recognized, and I struggle with that. I said, okay, I'll let them know that. And so here's the question. Some of the questions she, as she interacted with the Lord, the Father, around these passages, here's some of the questions she asked. What is the motiva motivation for the good things that I do? Is my end goal to join together with the whole as a dwelling place for God? Is he the center of my focus in serving, or am I? Do I bring my good gifts to be recognized by others, or am I doing it out of the reality of who I am? I don't need people to define my value and so therefore perform for them. God defines my value by telling me, I'm your father, you're my child, live out of that reality. And is that what my service is growing out of? What are the acts of love that I do? What are they? And are those loving acts for my own reputation or response to being in Christ, in his body? Do I consider myself as the only answer for people? Am I trying to be people's savior? Is Christ enough for them? Do I always have to be running around? I mean, these are good questions. Whatever the applications are from this passage as you meditate on this this part in Ephesians, whatever they are for you, meditate on them so you can see them bear fruit in your life. And so her conclusion statement was, in answering these questions, I can begin to evaluate, am I in, am I in, in Christ and do I love based on my actions, not simply what I say I believe? I read a Catholic nun not too long ago and she said this, I'm always watching what I do to see what it is that I really believe. So whatever your specific applications are, I encourage you not to let them slip by without giving them some intentional thought and meditative reflection. The bridge between knowing and doing is meditation. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? And are you, in, are you in love? Are you in love? 
Father, so we bring those questions. I ask you, am I in Christ? I know I am. Am I in love? Lord, help us to manifest these realities that you have made possible for us through the blood of your Son. Thank you for choosing us to be your children. The humble privilege of having your last name and making your presence known to each other and to the world. Lord, remind us of that reality and help us to live out of that. And even as we sing this last song, Lord, may we celebrate these realities and find ourselves more deeply living out of the reality of being in Christ and as a result, finding ourselves being more and more loving. Thank you for redeeming us and giving us the hope that these things are possible for us in Christ. Amen.